from her album Dream of Life. Patty Smith there, up there, down there. You are on In Your Face on 3CR with James. Coming to you live from the 3CR studios after 11 months of pre-recording. It's wonderful to be back. Uh, got some great interviews kicking off real soon with Joel Murray from Acon and a bit later, Louis Dean Valencia Garcia from Texas State University in Austin talks to us about the insurrection at the US Capitol building. Well, Queer Ability is a new program from ACON, the AIDS Council of New South Wales, to help queer folks with disabilities navigate the National Disability Insurance Scheme. On the line, we do have Joel Murray from ACON. Joel, welcome to the program. Thanks, James. It's always great to be on. Thank you so much for joining us live. It's such a thrill to have you back on the show. Joel, tell us about some of the tools that Queer Ability uh, uses to enable queer folks with disabilities to navigate the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Yeah, so this is a new um, area for ACON to be working in because we recognise that queer people with, and I use the term queer to encompass um, the whole of the alphabet, queer and trans, so we recognise that queer and trans people with disability um, experience um, poorer health outcomes compared to us in terms of discrimination, at greater restrictions on their freedom of sexual expression, reduced social support and connection, as well as um, reduced service access. So um, it happens both with that um, people with a disability are a, can be invisible within our communities and vice versa, that queer and trans people within the disabled community um, can also be invisible, as well as the NDIS being a really, really complex system to to navigate. Absolutely, and I imagine when you did the consultations, that was something that queer folks really highlighted, just how impossible sometimes it seems to navigate such a system that sometimes, ironically, doesn't seem that well designed for people with disabilities. Yeah, I think, you know, something as big as the National um, Disability Insurance Scheme, because it's such a big project, um, I, can, I, I would hate to be on the other end. But at the same time, you know, we have seen reports in the media that there is significant underspend compared to what is budgeted. And I can't help but think that part of that reason is because of how difficult um, the insurance scheme is to, uh, is to access in, and to navigate. Um, so we we engaged the co-design process for um, for our toolkit. So it's really um, designed by and delivered by people with disability because you know it's nothing for us without us. So it really uses the empowerment model of of program design. Yeah, I mean everything that. I, Everything ACON does is always co-design with the community, so we're targeting um, at the forefront and the centre of that conversation. And um, we're really um, blessed also to have had um, excellent colleagues um, guiding this process along the way. And so then we launched the toolkit on uh, International Day for People with Disability last year, so that was in December. Um, And then this year, what we're going to be doing is um, training other organisations outside of New South Wales to be able to understand the toolkit and also working with community on how to use the toolkit. So it's not just a matter of the toolkit's here, you can find it yourself and and, and, and she'll be right. Um, we want to also like do those really critical engagement activities with the, with the community who are affected so that they understand the toolkit and they can also get peer support from people um, who have experience in navigating the NDIS themselves. So it sounds like this is kind of like a, a groundbreaking project. It sounds like it's the first in the country. Um, this is. So um, you know, um, as the audience may be aware, um, ACON is um, situated in Sydney and we primarily focus on New South Wales. But um, this is one of the few projects that we have that is focusing at the national level. Um, and so... Um, the toolkit has been designed so that any of our community from across Australia can access this this um, toolkit. And I think this is just really the beginning as well of um, making sure that all of our programs across ACON are inclusive and or are meeting the, people, um, the needs of people with disability. So it's not just when we're focusing on disability or the NDIS, but we also, when we're doing health promotion and we're thinking about sexual health, we also want to be in, including people with disability in, in those conversations. 
And it sounds like the toolkit is really kind of, you know, aware of people's intersectionalities and the complexities that go with them. Absolutely. Uh, one Another project that we're working on um, out in Western Sydney uh, um, uh, showed that there were um, worse health outcomes for our community members who um, were living with intersections such as um, um, coming from a multicultural background, um, having um, being from a faith community, um, living with a disability, um, being trans or being Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. And so then when you unpack, um, if, if you've got um, multiple intersecting identities, it can mean that your experiences of stigma and discrimination are compounded. So, um, yeah, I just think that it's, this toolkit is, is starting to um, acknowledge, actually, that there is such diversity within our, within um, our collective queer and trans community. And, of course, it's been up and running for a couple of months now. You must be hearing some wonderful anecdotes from queer folks with disabilities about just how much easier the toolkit has made life for them. Can you share some of those stories? Yeah, so, I mean, this is, as I said earlier, this is, this is just the beginning. And also the nature of the NDIS is that it will evolve over time. So we're establishing a community advisory group um, to continue to work with um, my colleagues um, in ensuring that that toolkit remains up to date, but also that it responds to the needs of the people who are using the toolkit. So, you know, for example, if it comes along, if, if, if coming along, um, we realise that, um, you know, there's, there's maybe an accessibility issue or maybe people aren't able to find the information that they're after. We can use that co-design advisory group um, to reflect that and to change the tool and to and, and to advise us and reflect that back to the community. Um, so, I mean, I'm going to give a little shameless plug. We are looking for people um, with lived experience of disability um, from across Australia. So if um, you're interested in becoming part of the advisory group, we'd love to have you. And our um, email address is queerability at acon.org.au. It sounds like there's a real activist kind of, you know, component to queerability as well. And when I say that, I mean, it's kind of putting queer issues on the NDIS's agenda, but also the federal government's agenda when perhaps they weren't thinking of, of, of queer issues and the intersections that go with queer issues when they were designing the NDIS and indeed when they think about disability generally. I think that's a really good point. Um, yeah, so it's not only for the community, um, but it's also for other NDIS providers and planners. So um, there are a whole range, there's a wide range of the workforce included um, around the, the planning of someone's individualised um, plan under the NDIS. Um, and so it's also an opportunity to um, empower those services providers who may be mainstream providers, um, but how they might be able to meet the needs of um, queer people as well. So the toolkit serves that dual purpose. So how queer-friendly is the National Disability Insurance Scheme? I've never, um, I haven't had the, I haven't had the need to um, try and access the scheme, but from what we're hearing is that there is a real mixture of experiences, um, but mostly um, that, you know, sort of queer people, um, you know, queer people's needs might not necessarily um, fit neatly into boxes. And so um, what the toolkit will also, or what we're hoping to do is that eventually we'll be able to partner up peers who are already on the NDIS with peers who are looking to um, access the NDIS. And so not only will they have the toolkit, but they'll have a, have a peer with the lived experience um, being able to, um, you know, help them shape um, shape a package and also um, understanding, like, what categories they can apply for, which will um, help meet their needs. What impacts has queerability had on the culture of ACON, the AIDS Council of New South Wales, where you're from, regarding its uh, culture around disability accessibility? It sounds like it's done a lot for for making the organisation more accessible. I think this is, yeah, like I said, this is just the beginning for ACON and certainly um, we have the opportunity now to um, try and engage with um, parts of our communities who may not necessarily have been um, catered to in the past or had a voice in the past. And so um, I think this is really uh, enables us to not only um, have these programs and services available to our communities, but also the expertise within ACON to, um, 
you know, to ensure that our that across the board, our programs uh, and services, our health promotion information <clears throat> is also um, not only considering people with disability, but is actively including them. And so that might be something like the visual representation of people with disability in our promotional material, or it might mean um, putting our health promotion information um, that um, addresses specific needs of people with disability, or it might be putting health promotion information into more accessible language or um, another form of communication um, for people who need that. Of course, you've got a long and proud history of HIV activism and policy work in that field. To what extent does queer ability kind of cater for the needs of long-term survivors with HIV when they're navigating the NDIS? I actually don't have the answer to that one, James. I'm sorry. Fair enough. Um, but it sounds like, as you say, it's an evolving program. Uh, you're still very much looking for input from the community as it evolves. Uh, and it sounds like an absolutely wonderful step in the right direction for making the NDIS inclusive around the country. Joel Murray from ACOM, thank you so much for joining me today on 3CR. Thanks, James. 3CR. Well, Dr. Louis Dean Valencia Garcia is the Assistant Professor of Digital History at Texas State University in Austin. And Louis begins our interview by discussing how the far right has been emboldened since the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol building on January 6th. I think one of the things that's happened is the Republican Party in the United States, in its inability to really come to grips with uh, what has happened, it's really allowed for the sort of movement that already was happening prior to the 6th of January, to really be seen not just as a sort of movement that's well and alive, but these types of actions are now more thought of as practice than actually just sort of a one-and-done type of situation. And I think that's really the most insidious part of this, is that these uh, many of the far-right groups right now uh, see this as having been basically something that they got away with. There's, of course, been a lot of arrests and whatnot, but in the media, we'll say at the very least, most Republicans are not really willing to admit what had happened and the role of the Republican Party in it. And I think that's part of the danger. I think, one, it's showing very uh, plainly that the Republican Party is fallen into sort of a spire of QAnon, uh, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, but also really the sort of truth has been peeled back entirely. I don't think that there's any way to uh, describe it other than sort of being the far right unleashed. And I think that the Democratic Party, for example, is also having to come to grips with what is this new Republican Party that's emerged post-Trump, which still is very much so uh, part and parcel of the Trump world. And I think that uh, one way to think about it oftentimes is we see these types of uh, people like Trump who are sometimes described as strongmen or authoritarian figures. They don't come from nowhere, and they're not always the sort of driving force of these types of uh, far-right movements. They're also a product of the culture that allows for it. And I think that that's one of the important things to kind of keep in mind is that the Republican Party, as we see it today, is very much so in line with the far-right. Since the election, it seems that Trump's base has become more fanatical in its need to believe in him and believe what he says. Why do you think that is? I think part of it is that if Trumpism or Trump's ideologies or his way of um, falsely claiming that the elections were his, um, that he won, if they allow for any sort of alternative reality to exist, then it means that they have to reconsider their entire ideology. Everything about the ways that they've acted for the better part of five years now has to be questioned. And so it becomes really hard for a person on a very personal level to accept that they're wrong. And I think that's part of what we're seeing is uh, 
in order to allow for what a lot of people are calling the a big lie to to be you have to allow for all these other sort of things to coexist otherwise everything that you've sort of used as sort of your rationale to describe why you believe what you believe falls apart how would you describe the ideology of the of the trump base as it becomes more and more fanatical i think that there's not one coherent ideology and i think that's really important actually um because a lot of these a lot of people do end up there in different ways such as you have the sort of your everyday Richard Spencer type who is an um anti-semite openly who is a white nationalist openly and so they're form- they form one part of the base and you see a lot of those you saw a lot of those in the capital you see these sort of people who um marched around with confederate flags that are maybe not necessarily the neo-nazi type but they do have this sort of idea of this idealized white past that they are trying to in some way preserve and you also have these qanon people who are i think one of the best ways to describe it in comparison to other sort of fascistic movements is um you saw in franco's spain and you saw in uh hitler's germany this sort of tendency to go after the freemasons right which um in theory were a christian group they had their meetings and they're uh probably more like a sort of boys club of um some sort but they were never this sort of illuminati type of trope um and i think that what we're seeing now is sort of a fringe group of people who feel alienated from power that are trying to understand why they are alienated from power and the only way that they can come up with um sort of an answer is to start blaming um quote unquote globalist start blaming these uh sort of minority groups that are uh, based on sort of anti-semitic lies going back decades if not centuries what can the US government do to kind of you know break this kind of feeding or brainwashing that's happening uh towards the base through through the internet uh it seems that you know some companies such as facebook you know are complicit in this I think that there's very little the government can do. I think that a lot of these types of things have to come at the individual level. It has to come from people holding uh people responsible um in their everyday life for the things that they're saying. And that means that it's um not going to come from Joe Biden saying something that'll suddenly awaken all these people. It's not going to come from any representative or, um saying something that does this but i think it's going to have to come from people confronting their family members confronting their friends trying to break through and point out the contradictions hold people responsible and i think that's sort of really the only um way that people will start to be confronted by it i always um sort of say sort of borrowing from audre lord um who says that the master's tools um can never undo the master's house right is that we have to use tools that exist outside of fascism so if we're talking about using the state to counter fascism fascism knows how to use state apparatuses that's not going to work but i think what does exist outside of the fascist toolbox is looking at things like pluralism like trying to actively cultivate people interacting with people other than their own social groups and that's really hard because oftentimes it means that those groups that are most marginalized have to put themselves at risk which is not good for anybody to be honest and i think what you have to start finding is people who do have sort of positions of power have um love a level of privilege that can be allies to advocate for those groups and to make space for those people in the lives of people who have become fascistic you have to show them that there is a plurality of voices out there that uh are valuable and that type of thing is not easy 
you mentioned manipulation of the apparatus of government. How widespread uh, was Trump's use of the, the mechanisms of government insofar as the insurrection was concerned and the lack of response and the lack of, you know, apparent preparedness by federal agencies when an urgent response was required to counteract it? Right. I think that's actually one of the most damning things about what has happened is um, so whenever the insurrection was happening, um, I was actually watching it the entire day. So um, my eyes were glued to the television and the sort of response that typically would come from an attack of a capital would be the National Guard would be immediately uh, put on the ground. And that was delayed for several hours after requests were put in. And uh, it's come out in recent days that the sort of tensions were already rising in the uh, capital area the days before. So there was no real reason to not expect anything other than chaos that day. Uh, The Congresswoman Alessandria Ocasio-Cortez recently um, did an Instagram feed where she talked about sort of the days leading up to it and how she was worried. And I think that what we saw is the sort of uh, lack of response from the government because it was in their best, it was in Trump's best interest to let something happen. I don't know what uh, his ultimate goals were. I don't know if any of us really do, but I think that we saw very much so that he meant to incite people to one travel to Washington, DC two uh, on the day of holding a gathering, a rally of sorts. And then three very specifically saying that these people needed to fight back and that they needed to go to the Capitol to do so. And so I think that all of these types of things put together show that of course the government didn't do anything to stop what was happening. The government Trump's administration was actively pursuing those actions. How widespread do you think are both the administration's enabling of 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 insurrectionists and also the GOP's enabling of insurrectionists? How how widespread was that with the information that they provided? I mean, it just seemed like so many of them were very, very, very certain of where they were going within the Capitol building. Right. And there's been some particular Republican, um, sorry, uh, Democratic um, Congress representatives who have said that in the days leading up, they've seen, they saw some of these uh, Trumpers, for lack of a better word, in the, in the Congress itself. Um, so in the building, which has been blocked off for, from visits since the COVID crisis began. So it actually was very strange that this would um, that there would be groups checking out the layout of the building at all, that w- they would be doing a visit. And so quite possibly what we're going to see is people who were very specifically uh, implicated in showing these insurrectionists the layout of the building, where to go. Um, and I think that's eventually going to become more clear. But I think that for now, a lot of these people are still in positions of power, which is quite frankly, terrifying and disappointing. As a historian, how do you think history will judge the Republican Party and the US Senate if it doesn't uh, convict Trump next week? That's a good question. I think, well, one, uh, it's always difficult to predict the future, right? But if anything, I think that what we'll see is there are going to be some people who do convict Trump for uh, what has happened, and there are going to be people that do not. And already, in, even in Texas, so Texas known for being a conservative state, there was just today signs uh, calling for uh, for uh, Ted Cruz to be kicked out of office, put up by Republicans within Texas. So I think that ultimately the clock is already swinging toward um, maybe condemning what had happened. But the problem is that there is still just such a majority of people who think that Biden didn't actually win the election. And so until those people 
come to accept reality, I think that it will be a while before we, um, the United States as a country even knows how to process all of that. It's hard for history to make any sort of judgment whenever the stories are not told yet. But I think, if anything, what we're going to see is sort of the far right continuing to grow. I think what we're going to see is a continuing um, appearance of far right actions in the public sphere. And I think that this isn't going away. And so, um, unfortunately, I think that this is just the beginning of the story. Do you think that even if you know Trump is convicted or not, that there's a very real threat that his uh, Patriots Party will still be formed? And what we'll see is a split within the Republican Party and we'll have two right-wing uh, political parties within the U.S. mainstream? I think it's very possible, but I don't think that there's really been any sort of evidence that the Republicans are going to break into two separate parties yet. And as I always sort of remind myself and people, the the far right tends to goose step in line more easily than we'll say uh, left-wing parties, which all are tend to have different perspectives and debate ideas. The far right tends to culminate with sort of um, a racist, sexist, anti-immigrant, uh, queerphobic tropes that are ableist, you name it. All of these things, tend they tend to agree with. So while they might not necessarily agree with some particularities, for the large part of the far right, and I do consider the Republican Party by and large far right generally now, um, they're in agreement. So I don't see it necessarily breaking into two separate parties, just anytime soon at least. 3C You're listening to an interview with historian and fascism expert, Dr. Louis Dean Valencia-Garcia from Texas State University on 3CRs in your face. Were you surprised at how many Americans voted for Donald Trump? I mean, he's got the second highest tally in U.S. presidential history after Biden. Personally, I was not. Um, but I wasn't surprised when Trump won the first time either. So I think that what we have is such a partisanship that you really have people who, for example, I never would have expected to vote for Biden, voting for Biden, because they saw Trump as such a risk. And I think that there are so many people who have now started to see the Democratic Party as sort of authoritarian communists, that they don't really have any idea of sort of a sense of reality. And I think that's really part of the, the real danger of what's going on right now is that the far right in the United States isn't hasn't really shifted that much in the last four or five years. I think, if anything, it's uh, more solidified to the right uh, to the far right, absolutely. And if the sort of indication of the Republicans who voted for um, voted against the the impeachment are indicative of this, the, there is very little movement within the Republican Party. They're marching as a block by and large, um, out of more than. Um, we'll say more than a hundred and some odd uh, Republicans voted for uh, the acquittal of Trump from impeachment, right? So with 10 people essentially voting to convict or to impeach Trump out of a body as big as the House of Representatives shows that there is by and large agreement in the Republican Party. Election night, of course, kind of went to plan, like the political commentators said, that there would be a red wave because so many Trump voters, you know, defied COVID and, you know, went to vote, uh, if you like. And then there was that blue wave in the coming, you know, 48 hours as the as the um, early votes and postal votes were counted. What was it like for you, though, watching all of that? How scary was it when Trump was ahead? 
I think that the big question for me, uh, in the same way that it was for sort of the last election, was sort of where Pennsylvania would go. Um, so in the previous election, there was a question of where Pennsylvania would go, and Pennsylvania went for Trump. Um, and that sort of was one of the 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 dividing lines between the bluer north and the red south. And so I think Pennsylvania is a big indicator there. Um, but once we started to see Arizona switch blue, that felt like, okay, things are going to probably be okay. It's another one of those states that can go either way. So I think by and large, it seemed to me that they were this um, on election night that there was at least a really good chance that Biden would win. But I think that it really was sort of states like Georgia, which nobody really expected, right? And just the fact that those were in uh, contestation indicated that there was more of a battle to be fought than uh, Trump would have actually had liked or even expected, especially in the southern states. And even Texas um, was pretty close to going blue, so or moved closer to blue than it's been in a long time. So just the fact that those sort of states were question marks, I think, made me feel a little bit better about the election generally. But like I said, I think that um, the real question for me was not how people would vote, but if Trump would let go of the reins of power. And I think to some degree, had the January of six, uh, January 6th insurrection gone differently, gone disastrously, I think we would still, we would be living in a very different United States right now. How close did Trump's coup come to being successful, do you think? Incredibly close. Uh, whenever you have people marching into the Capitol looking for Democratic representatives, that is essentially an attempt at taking out power. Whenever you have uh, hours going by before there is a real response to something like that, and the fact that it was also happening simultaneously with the counting of these uh, this, the certification of these uh, electoral college votes meant that there was a very adamant attempt to disrupt the democratic process i don't i think that right now it's kind of seeing some of the images of people who oftentimes look um cartoonish in their imagery that were in there um in the capitol sort of is overshadowing the actual threat that there were uh, pipe bombs set around the Capitol. There were people who showed up with guns. There were people that showed up with zip ties to potentially take people hostage. They're going through uh, trying to find Congress representatives in their uh, sort of cubbyhole spaces within the Capitol that, where they work. And I think that those facts really can't be underplayed enough. Um, it could have gone a very different way very easily. What would America look like now if it had gone that other way and if the insurrection had been successful? That's a hard question to answer, but if we look at other sort of authoritarian countries, oftentimes what the first step is to reframe what had just happened. So I think about um, Franco in Spain and the uh, 1930s. He called the Spanish Civil War a war of liberation rather than a civil war. So sort of switching the narrative where uh, instead of it's a in, what was an insurrection against a legitimate democratic government becomes a sort of war of liberation. And I think that you oftentimes see that sort of rhetoric in cases where there is an insurrection. Suddenly the democratic institutions become villainized. Um, you're seeing that right now in um, places like Myanmar, right, where a democratic election happened and you have the military not being uh, pleased with the results and they're trying to reframe it as something that it wasn't. And this is really sort of where I think the idea of uh, alt histories is helpful. 
um, they oftentimes when authoritarian governments come into play, uh, right-wing governments particularly, they try to come up with these invented pasts that never were, but these invented pasts allow for them to legitimate their actions. And I think that's probably what we would be seeing more of. And I think um, if you actually look at one of the last acts of the Trump administration was to release a report on American history as exceptional and that slavery was sort of a minor um, thing that uh, tried to reframe the history of the United States from a sort of far-right perspective. That was one of the last things that came out of the Trump administration. And I don't think that's coincidental. Had the insurrection gone a different way, that sort of model that was released would have probably been the basis of sort of the legitimacy of the Trump administration. Uh, Trump was always about trying to, quote unquote, make America great again. And for the far right, that America, which was great, was actually an America that was um, segregationist. It was an America that was not allowing women to be in the public sphere. It was a America that was oppressive to queer people, right? The America that I think the the Trumpian worldview allows for is a world that's less diverse, a world that's uh, doesn't allow for a variety of people to coexist. And I think that's one of the sort of things that was already happening, right? There was already this sort of attempt to reframe what America, what the United States had been. And I think that what we would have seen if Trump had won is sort of a, an attempt at trying to legitimate these radical, uh, would, would have been radical actions. What are the impacts for the queer community of a Biden presidency? Honestly, I think that's a really um, interesting question. So one of the first things that he did in the first days of office was allow for uh, transgender people to be in the military. While I don't necessarily think that the military is a good sort of starting point to talk about queer issues by any stretch of the imagination, it is a space that is typically very heterosexist and very much so uh, queerphobic historically. Right. So the fact that those um, sort of conversations are happening in the most heterosexist spaces traditionally means that there is sort of a opening of this conversation. So if if it's happening in very masculinist, chauvinistic, traditionally queer phobic spaces that bodes well for queer communities in society writ large. And so I think that's hopeful. I think that particularly queer people who've had some discrimination, um, particularly in medical sort of spaces and also in questions of adoption will probably be significantly better in the coming years. I think that might be something to kind of keep an eye on. But I, I think one of the things to kind of keep in mind especially when thinking about sort of uh, far-right groups like um, Trump's uh, Republican Party, or if you're talking about Nazi Germany. Uh, queer groups have historically been sort of the ire of the far-right because they're seen as uh, decadent, as a drain on the nation and not productive towards sort of the na- the of the body of the nation. They're not producing children the way that the nation would like. Um, and so I think that it, queer communities have always been sort of one of the very much so dividing lines, but um, there were contested spaces before the far right reacts in similar ways. So Weimar Germany, before Hitler comes into power, was more sexually liberated than uh, we would have seen in the uh, in previous centuries in Germany, right? And so I think that one thing that we can't sort of forget is that whenever far-right groups do tend to come out of the woodwork, it's responding to something, changes in society. And I think that the sort of opening of spaces for queer people, um, while better in the last 20 years, 
was, and still not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, was enough to really activate this sort of far-right wave. So I think that we can't really disassociate Trumpism from uh, sort of a rejection of a world that is more accepting to queer people. Um, and also throw into that uh, accepting of people of color and accepting of people of different um, beliefs than sort of the straight white male conservative that would have been part of the sort of ideal member of the American society for a lot of the Republican Party. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. Of course, Texas has been very hard hit by COVID. What's it like for you at, at this point in the pandemic, Louis, living in, living in Austin? There's been various surges since we last spoke uh, and record numbers of infections. Yeah, so um, I think just to give you an idea, um, I would say that it's been really sort of all over the place, to be honest. Uh, the vaccine has been delivered to several communities, but it's very piecemeal. There's not really a sort of action plan to get things out. And I think that's been that that is partially because of the aftermath of the Trump administration. There was never a national plan put into place. And there was not enough transparency about how many vaccinations would be available at any given time. And so while there's been that sort of move to normalize um, the situation through the vaccines, for a lot of people, there's I still see people who do not wear masks. There are still people who don't believe that the virus exists, or if it does, it's not as bad as uh, um, they see on the news. Or there are people who say have this sort of masculine bravado about themselves that, well, if you're strong, then you will survive, which really gets in too close to sort of a eugenicist mindset for my taste personally. But um, I do think that there are some cities and um, particular counties that are doing better than others. And so you do see sort of the metropolitan areas trying to do better than um, a lot of other parts of the state. So places like Austin are doing better. Um, San Antonio is doing better. Uh, Houston has such a big population that it's hard to really navigate all of that. And you see sort of attempts at, um, there isn't a lot of transparency about why certain places are getting more vaccine than others. And so it's a little bit of a a mess, to be quite honest. To what extent do you see this kind of, you know, COVID denialism and this kind of, you know, macho bravado, if you like, as being kind of synonymous with a with a with a white supremacist kind of view of the world. Oh, I think that it's absolutely part of uh, white supremacist uh, perspective. This idea that um, somehow your the white um, we'll say with the uh, with white supremacists generally this idea that your race is superior that they're able to um, deal with this better than other groups. And I think that one thing that we just cannot under underline enough is that whenever the pandemic broke out in the United States, there was an actual somewhat attempt by the Trump administration to address it whenever it was happening to seemingly people who were from elite groups that traveled internationally, whenever it was sort of that layer of people. But as the pandemic moved on in the first couple of months, it became pretty clear that it was primarily communities of color that were being hardest hit. And I think that there I've heard in uh, online chats of sort of ill repute for a lack of a better word, comments that the far right white supremacists sometimes see this as good because it is attacking communities of color, which is a horrendous thing to even say out loud, but it's part of what white supremacist groups are saying right now. Louis Dean Valencia Garcia, it's always wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you so much for talking to me today on 3CR. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me back. I appreciate it.
the Yeah, Yeah, Yeah's there, Area 52. I am out of here. Jacob's up next with a Friday rave. It's been awesome being back in the 3CR studios live to air. Taking us out is Moby with Saints, and we'll catch you next week on In Your Face. In Your Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. 
Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV, and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook.